this is Ryan Harvey in London, and you are listening to episode one of Hope Dies Last, the return of Low Key. During the time I was away, there were several experiences which deepened my political understanding. The London Fire Brigade are dealing with a huge fire in a residential tower block in West London. Grenfell woke a lot of people up in terms of their ideas of what they thought London was. Uh, at uh, just gone half past four in the morning, we are calling it for leave to win this referendum. An extraordinary moment Existing in British order history. has died, but what is new has not been able to materialize. So I figured my first episode had to be somewhat exciting. So I came over to London and I sat down with someone who I consider to be one of the best hip hop artists in the world right now, certainly one of the best hip-hop artists in Britain, a man named Low Key. And we sat down in Low Key's community, Ladbrook Grove in West London, in a community center, in a recording studio, had a really great conversation. Joining me for the interview is one of my best friends in the world, himself a really amazing musician and political activist, Kareem Samara. A lot of you have heard Kareem playing the oud and other instruments on my Thin Blue Border albums. Kareem is one of the founders of London Palestine Action. He is a terrific instrumentalist and musician and artist. So what you're about to hear is an organic conversation between three of us focusing on some pretty crucial topics, current events, perspectives on music and art and activism and a lot of chat about Low-Key's new album, Soundtrack to the Struggle Part 2. Low-Key was on a hiatus for a couple of years, and then he started leaking the idea that he was going to have a new album out. And you'll hear me get quite excited about that in the interview. So with no further ado, welcome to episode one of Hope Dies Last, the return of Loki. You can never talk my fire in a booth. I don't need a label, I'm saying to the truth. If you're relying hard with the mind of a moose, your circle can hurt you as tight as a noose. Bars, artillery, harsher than killer bees. I'm a marksman with beats, carving them into meat. Palm in knees, laugh at them in the street. Want to spar the elite, hard for you to compete. Not a marketing dream, hearts in the Middle East. Starving to eat, Margaret beyond belief where they martyr the meat. Marching them into me with the arms of the So we are here in Labrador Grove, and I'm here today with my good friend and my musical co-conspirator, Kareem Samara, and also with one of the UK's most notorious underground hip-hop artists and also political activist and thinker, Low Key. Welcome to the show, Low Key. Thank you for having me, man. It's good to see you. And welcome to the show, Kareem. Thanks, Ryan. Good to see you. Low Key, let's jump right into it. You established this, this huge underground notoriety, putting songs out online for free, dropping videos, some really hard-hitting videos. Mm. You got into some legal trouble around some of your music. You came back on the front foot, and then you were gone for like a decade. Not quite a decade-ish. Yeah, I would say four years, actually, to be honest. You know, it you felt like a decade. Edit that out. <laughs> edit it out felt, your mistake, It right? felt like a decade. <laughs> it was years in my in my life. But so you were... You were gone and now you've come back and you were gone at least for long enough to warrant the return of low key yeah. being, you know, the 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 song you dropped and, yeah, and sort definitely. of the, the vibe you've been giving. So I want to ask, let's talk about, I want to talk about what you do, but where you've been at and, you know, this new album, you spent like, 
almost a decade, I swear, <laughs> building it up. I was like, I think Loki's got a new album coming. There's another <laughs> video. It sound, and then it, you would hint at it in a song. The album is next. And I was yeah. like, oh, he's really doing I was, it. I was actually getting calls from Ryan going like, yo, so what's going on with uh, <laughs> what's going on with Loki's album? That's I was like, it was I don't know, man. I don't the marketing know. work. That's super um, sweet. But let's talk about your new album and, yeah. and just, you know, where, where you've been at, where the album's coming from. Well, I think the album is an increase in sophistication of what I'm trying to say. If you compare it to soundtrack to The Struggle 1, that is a mainly what they call in kind of uh, international relations, a realist analysis of the world. So it's very state heavy. It's very focused on what powerful people are doing. Whereas uh, during the time I was away, there were of course several experiences which deepened, I would say, my political understanding, which, you know, at the stage of Soundtrack to the Struggle 1 was instinctive. So it was a kind of instinctive rebellion but it wasn't particularly deep. It was a fairly shallow kind of interaction with quite deep subjects. But then along the path to the second album, I was exposed to things which forced me to have a greater appreciation for the complexities, but I also was able to build a bit more of a curriculum which was independent from the one we're kind of socialized into having in this country. I think people are largely miseducated by design. So rather than us viewing, say, the right to vote for um, episodic uh, parliamentary representation, not that that is the final stage of democratic expression, um, I'm not looking at it as C.S. Lewis called it chronological arrogance, the idea that we have reached the very zenith and pinnacle of societal development and civilization. However, what I would say is that that fight for that fight for uh, representation within Parliament was something that was waged for 300 years. You know, by the Chartists, by the people that were killed at Peterloo in 1819, by um, uh, the levellers from the Putney debates. They say we're criminals for syllables and stanzas when they subsidise the killers, tools, the pillagers and bankers who were the engines of history. People like me and you who got massacred for the right to vote at Peterloo. It was Imagineers. The poets and the artists, the miners, told puddle martyrs, William Cuffey and the chartists, rebel and resist, even through something small, create windows with words and mirrors where once were You know, this idea that everybody within the society, man, woman, landowning, non-landowning, would have the right to vote for a representative within a parliament was something that was really seriously fought for, that people were, you know, one of the things that always makes me laugh is when people say, if you don't like it here, why don't you leave? Well, that's not just a thing people say. That's actually an expression of what was government policy. So William Cuffey, who led the Chartist movement, people that were calling for the right to vote for people that don't own property in this country, he was um, deported from this country to, he was a disabled mixed race man. He was deported to Tasmania, where the indigenous population died through their contact with British imperialism, uh, genocidal violence, but also uh, the passing on of diseases. You look at the toll puddle martyrs, so the first trade union that was formed in this country, they were deported to Australia. So it has historical precedent, this idea of if you don't like the society, if you're trying to improve it, you're an extremist, you have to be sent outside. And, and that's what happened, you know, and so... 
rather than being someone who was a product of this society that came out viewing these things as sort of the powerful parts of the society bequeathing to the rest of the society these rights. So this was indicative of some type of inherent um, superiority of British society because we were still inculcated with these ideas despite the fact that we were rebelling against a lot of the kind of received wisdom of today, we were not given the tools of critical thinking to challenge what was the received wisdom of yesterday. And so the real war against memory. So I had the time to kind of read a little bit more, um, to get a little bit more hands-on involved in, in, in political movement. But then I was in a situation where we have someone from among us who has held his constituency for longer than I've been alive, um, in a position where he had been thrust to the front of one of those main parties that had been part of a bipartisan uh, kind of orthodoxy of neoliberal necropolitics for the last 30 years or so, you know, policies which equal human suffering and death. And we had someone from among us, one of the campaigners, one of those who was throwing metaphorical molotovs from behind the barricades for many years, now in the position of leadership of the Labour Party. And this would be Jeremy Corbyn. And this would be Jeremy Corbyn. And this had led to hundreds of thousands of people joining the party. But with, in right. terms of uh, the situation with political figures like Sanders, like um, Ilhan Omar, like uh, Jeremy Corbyn, they are testing the limits of our so-called democratic institutions, because that will put us in a position where if we view it as up for grabs, us voting for these things, there will be um, many different mechanisms aimed at suppressing that. And I think we're living through it here with, with Corbyn, really in an unprecedented way. So now you start entering into the place where, you know, um, Gramsci had the idea of the interregnum. So it's the point where the existing order has died or is in its death pangs, but what is new has not been able to materialize. So we actually mm. are in a period where that is being contested. What's new you know, neoliberalism as it was, you've got people like Gordon Brown coming out and saying the neoliberal consensus is dead. Okay, neoliberalism, the idea that corporations are better suited to carry out the vital functions of state, you know, you know, the state is a very, very modern idea in human history. Mm. But that kind of passed its sell by date you had the suicidal state which mm. cannibalizes itself it it gets corporations to do all the things it should be doing for profit rather than for the uh interests of of or for fulfilling a social contract which we understood the, st the state to be obliged to do but neoliberalism is now being held up as something that's almost unelectable and so being in that position and seeing that we're in this space mm -hmm. made me feel that not to use the platform that I'd worked hard to build up um, and not to speak, now the stakes were higher than they'd ever been before. 
Is it the economic system v the ecosystem? How we gonna define deep when the seas have risen? How can we define woke when our sleep's commissioned? Drowned out by cold brother bots, how can the people listen? Can't detoxify as we watch the sky fade to grey? The source devoured, corporate power killed the nation, state sophisticated murder. Defined as innovation, corporations whining and dying just to mine your information. Amen versus humanity, terrorists who? His search engine knows your thought pattern better than you. In an environment resentful, uprising is essential. The Rising is torrential, thinking silence will protect you Subject to propaganda that terrifies the slumbered We can jeopardise their cover if we energise the numbers Collectivise or die, protect your mind or suffer Life is paradise to some and a paradise to others That's my kind of album intro Right? <laughs> right? Um, because, you know, we, we put an album out um, in the last couple years a, a double album that, you know, the the... The album's called Thin Blue Border, and when, you know, I try to describe it, it's like, well, this, you know, we're talking about, like, decades of political development that led to, you know, the situation on Greek beaches in the last yeah, couple yeah. of years, the situation in the Mediterranean, not even to mention the situation in Jordan, Lebanon, yeah, Turkey, yeah. Mm-hmm. Iraq and Syria, Yemen, Palestine. So, you know, it's like, uh, uh, which, where do I start, you know, so I have a, the simple story. But, like you said, your last album, before this one, your, your, your earlier songs were very much so pointing out the the surface level political issues in depth i don't mean surface like they were shallow no no they were um no (laughs) and and this album you're talking about neoliberalism a lot that's one of Mm. the threads going through the whole album but you're not just talking about neoliberalism as an experience of the global south you're also talking about as an experience of the marginalized within the global north within the third world inside of the first world and you're also, you know, and the album's also very much about power, right? I mean, one of the songs is very much about power, but it's about power. It's about honoring the heroism of, of you know, the, the, the folks on the bottom, the folks who are marginalized, the folks who are pushed, and, and about building power. So it's really cool. It's a continuity from, from what you've done before, but it, it comes out of, like you're saying, it comes out of this necessity that we have our shit together right now because what we're facing is really big, especially when you have Boris Johnson's, Donald Trump's, Gert Wilders, you know, Salvini, uh, all these far right, le- Modi, you know, Bolsonaro, all over the world seizing on the moment. They know that the center's gone. They know that neoliberalism is, is, is on its way out but is consuming things as it goes. And it's like, it took, it seems like it took the left a little bit longer for that to click. But I do think for us, you know, we have now the first socialists in Congress and they're not even, you know, they're not radical socialists, but we have folks like Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Bernie Sanders is still out there. And that is not unrelated to Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn and, and the entryism into labor showed like, hey, you you can kind of do this, and it's not co- we're not co-opting the party. We're we're holding it to its own supposed values or whatever. So you've put an album out in this moment, you know. But let's talk about the first. Let's talk about the power, and I'm interested in that. Both two threads, and I want to ask you about this too, Kareem. 
two threads through the album is is that the idea of of empowering the powerless or exposing the power of the powerless right that's already that's already there encouraging it recognizing it honoring it holding it up reflecting on it and also this theme of diaspora the diaspora as a global phenomenon diaspora in your own life diaspora in the uk as a specific experience and i know we were talking about that the the changing diaspora of the uk let's talk about that for a bit talk about those those concepts when when we look at the idea of power within within art i guess i go down the way that my art practice has changed in how i think the correct way to address slash challenge slash honor uh, so to challenge the powerful and then to honor the powerless or to amplify the powerless, so to speak, has definitely gone from 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 my perspective um, as a practice of writing songs about it, um, went into the actual practice of perhaps the sonic and the, the sound art aspect of the sort of work that I do. The work that we did, Ryan, on Thin Blue Border was by far the most lyrical... Um, investigation of what is happening and why and how we come across it. Like I think on those album, on the two EPs that we've, we've released, I think that we've really gone through such a wide variety of issues. And as we said, like in the bio of the album, like we really are linking the, the gas, uh, the tear gas canisters that are produced in the States that are then used all over the world. And we're kind of linking that through really tuneful, folky kind of poppy songs, you know, like not, not particularly hard hitting, maybe except for the Heroin Wars tune, which is like the most punky one that we've that we've got. Um, but I go back to like the uh, the art of noise by Jacketelli and uh, the idea of like if you're creating a sound and you're creating something like the master has mirrors within his house. Is this uh, this this concept of that if you're peddling an idea, if you're peddling a trope, if you're peddling a form? the powerful know how to use it, something that we were discussing mm, just kind of mm. before this idea and like the powerful, uh, just to quote you of what you said, like the powerful, uh, maybe it's a misquote so you can correct me, is that the, the best tool of the powerful is to disguise how much power they have. So personally within my practice is, is perhaps challenging that idea of what form it takes um, within like Loki's, music and the album and there are specific songs that are straight up challenging the narrative of what everyone is being told and and I think that we we all have to work on different levels I don't think there's one way of of doing it and I do think that on a very basic level if you are from a community and you talked about like diaspora etc if you are from marginalized communities um, or smaller ethnic groups or smaller groups smaller class groups within the UK or in anywhere in the world you don't only just want to hear how bad everything has been, how bad everything is going to be. You do need to know where you can draw that strength from. And you do need to not only hear about people such as Loki talking about those that you can draw strength from and who have led the way, but then also you see Loki as another element of that is a route that I can use and take, whether it be through the same kind of form, but you are seeing that, oh, but actually, you know, your references... You were talking earlier about the curriculum. You know, we've just come out of the My University Goldsmiths, uh, the anti-racist occupation. Uh, and as Loki was given a, like, a bit of a clue to our age, we have a generation that 
when I left university, like I was not political in terms of like, I was not politically active. I was still like forming my my politics and why I believed what I did, et cetera, and why the world was the way it was. I was in the occupation with like these amazing 18, 19 year olds that can blow me out of the water <laughs> with not only, not only what they know, but how they're going to do it. They, time and time again, these people, these young and predominantly young women from marginalized communities, absolutely fearless and absolutely perfectly articulate with how they understand an ongoing situation with when you're talking about like five minutes to understand what has just happened and they can nail it in a second their power like floored me and I've been organizing for a long time time after time after time but that comes as a lineage because that wouldn't have happened without those sorts of people that they look up to whether it be low, low key, whether it be a Carlo, whether it be other thinkers, whether it be certain professors at a university, whether it be a certain teacher at the primary school, whether it be an elder of the community, whether it be Uncle Niles at the at the bay. I think the question of diaspora is a question about where you're going to place your solidarity. Is it going to be in a vertical way? Is it going to be with the powerful? Because there's millionaires, there have been millionaires made by the war on terror. In terms of in terms of propagandists, in terms of native informants, in terms of you know, there's a myriad of ways in which you can make money. You now, conceivably, could apply for funding, okay, to befriend and spy on me, okay, or to build data on me and my digital footprint as part of the war on terror um, superstructure that's been created, and make a living for a year value is being created without any of our consent just by um, uh, our politics and so the point is is that that is a really interesting way in which diaspora is such a a, a deep and layered issue and and and, it, and it's a question it's not it's not actually the the idea of diaspora is not an absolute it's not i am of this diaspora it's a question of okay where is your solidarity going to go another vital function that we can do is if we're able to serve as a, a kind of you know angela davis said uh, um a bridge is a wall turned sideways so if you can serve Right, as somebody that turns that wall into a bridge by, you know, translating rather than for the British Army or rather than for the US Army, for um, lawyers working pro bono here who are from many different places who are trying to help people get into this country, whether it was under the Dublin Amendment of EU law. That was mainly where I was working on in, in uh, you know, 2014, 2015. And and I thought and I felt at that time, okay, well, this is this is a way in which you can use your position to really assert a solidarity, which is a positive solidarity in a good direction. Yeah, this the idea of diaspora is so often just made to be so simple to a lot of people. It's like the diaspora is you are partly from somewhere else. Is like an off like a just simple analysis. But and you both, just to preface for the listeners, right, you both come from one parent, your your mother's Palestinian, but also grew up in Egypt. Yeah. But, but you know, one, one thing I'll just, I'll, I'll just say one thing really quickly is I feel that sometimes um, uh, staying 
you know, and and I would write that song that I wrote particularly about it. I would write it differently now. Hmm. I feel like kind of hmm. um, ruminating on the issue of diaspora can kind of lend itself to uh, a position of individualizing things to a certain extent and kind of being painstaking about the sense of loss which it mm -hmm. can give birth to. However, however. In reality, if we look at, say, Herodotus, for example, considered the father of Greek history, okay, he was born um, in a part of uh, the world which today is considered Turkey. Um, he was believed to, I think, partially been of Persian origin, at least. You know, you look at uh, Prince Philip, right, born in uh, Greece. Corfu. Yeah. And uh, the Prince of Greece. Now, is he part of Greek diaspora? No, no, but this is a really important yeah, question. Yeah, of course. Because yeah. this existential way of understanding human beings as having inherent properties, mm. you know, right, right. I biologically am no different from anyone else. Race, right, while having real consequences, is just a social construct, okay? People might be conditioned by the way they're racialized, but they're not determined by the way they're mm. racialized. And I think that's an important point to Absolutely, add to it, is, that, is yeah. that my connection mm. with people in Iraq is a connection which I choose to have, mm -hmm. I choose to have upon the basis of solidarity, not upon the basis of racial understandings of human beings not upon the basis of saying that i am inherently different from anyone else do you, do you see what i mean absolutely and I, no, think, and I think that's a really important thing because yeah. sometimes i feel like the diaspora stuff can be a product of quite a an empty identity policy. Yeah, totally. Reason some are petrified, colonial mimic, mascot crying behind a mask, or a man with amnesia trying to find his past. Anthony Walker never had a weapon, but they still got him. Stephen Lawrence never had a weapon, but they still got him. Mark Duggan never had a weapon, but they still shot him. They call him first world diaspora problems. Don't you wonder what became of the children of diaspora? Those that innovated in their ways and their vernacular. Those who saw their traces in the faces of the massacred. I wonder what became of him tell me what became of him so hadid was a child of diaspora so you're listening to episode one of hope dies last we are recording here in london with our special guest low key and our guest host kareem samara if you like what you're hearing please consider becoming a sustainer of the podcast at patreon.com slash ryan harvey music if you've already done that thank you so much and enjoy the rest of episode one this Renfell Tower now, historically a symbol People reaching from their windows Screaming for their lives Pleading with their cries Trying to reason with the skies They all you birth champions Comparison is clear though That every single person in that building was a hero So don't judge our tired eyes in these trying times Because we've been breathing in cyanide the entire night As Aside from, you know, that concept of diaspora we were discussing And also hope and power mm -hmm. uh, The other major thread 
running through your album that really jumps out for obvious reasons is the Grenfell fire. And, you know, you have multiple songs about it. You also talk about it all over the album, both Mm -hmm. as, and to me, the whole album in a way Mm -hmm. is about Grenfell, both as a lived experience. And as a harbinger of things to come. As a harbinger of things to come and as a, as a symbol Mm. of a much larger global situation. Well, you know, just to start with, um, the neoliberal era, while it was really implemented by uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan after they had been really proselytized to by Milton Friedman, um, the precedent to it was the government of James Callaghan in Britain taking a loan from the IMF and Jimmy Carter in the US context. Um, One of the things that Thatcher did was she um, replaced something like 320-ish pages of building regulations with about 24 pages of building regulations. So in that act, you know, Michael Heseltine at the time, um, it's called the Building Regulations Act of 1984, he said it will allow greater self-regulation by the construction industry. Okay, so that self-regulation was put into place really in the 80s. You then had John Prescott in the 90s, New Labour. He uh, edited uh, something called Approved Document B, which was basically the explaining of building regulations. And it opened the space for a few things. Opened the space for what they call desktop studies, which is when you have a very complex... um, Uh, refurbishment like the one at Grenfell in terms of the amount of stakeholders in it, the amount of different companies involved in it, the amount of outsourcing in it, rather than testing all the material together, desktop studies are a thing where you take the individual results from each of those tests for those materials, you put them on a computer and it doesn't have to be in front of an expert. It can just be an employee of the company. And they say, well, that looks about right because those results are this way. The other important part is the privatization of an organization called uh, BRE, which is the main body in this country which tests uh, construction materials. And they became at least partially um, reliant on funding from the insulation foam industry. You also had the Kyoto Agreements which was an important part of this because Britain signed an obligation to lower its carbon emissions. And one of the most prominent ways that people argue we should lower our carbon emissions is by insulating all homes straight away. So that's actually something that's subsidized by the government, the insulation of homes. And so for companies like Celatex, who are really important in this story, subsidiary of Sangoban, um, it was a big payoff for them because now they were able to insulate loads of places. Now, the really important components of the refurbishment were Arconic PE Renabond. It had six millimeters of polyethylene in the middle of it, and it had plates of aluminium on either side. Now, it's clear that that would not meet uh, building regulation um, E, which is the lowest, you know, and as uh, experts have said, it wouldn't be fit to be on a dog kennel. You know, this is their language, not mine. However, they were able to pass that on a test, supposedly meeting the requirement of limited combustibility, right, upon the basis that the external surface aluminium met 
limited combustibility, right? But the internal, the P, the the polyethylene would never have met limited combustibility. Now there were internal emails at Arconic acknowledging around the time of the refurbishment that this stuff was not good. You know, they released in their own brochure in 2016 something saying this. PE Rennebon should not go on buildings over 10 meters tall. And obviously Grenfell is far beyond 10 meters tall. The other part of this is Celatex RS5000, which is the insulation it contains within it, according to Grenfell Action Group foam that was is banned in uh, in sofas and in furniture. So it contains in it stuff that you can't be sitting on, but you could be sitting against because it could be in your wall. And they were able to pass it at a, with a test at BRE, which is now the way BRE do tests. Is if I, if you're BRE and I'm the company, I bring you fifteen thousand pounds, and you just send me to a a, a garage in um, a warehouse in uh, Watford. I do the test, and then I report to you the results of my test. So now, B, uh, Celatex came out and said they misrepresented the results of their test. Okay, which is an admission that what they had claimed met the uh, limited combustibility we also have evidence of them using strips of magnesium on the top of their test in order to prevent the fire from reaching it so this is uh, this is on top of this the technical director of Celatex was an advisor to the housing minister Saj Javid on building regulations he had a post on Celatex's website in 2011 we have this is a direct quote not a paraphrase we have now entered government we are um, shaping building regulations to maximize benefits to our industry. So what you're talking about is the penetration of regulatory bodies, the maximization of profit for these companies. It happens in many other industries. And in some cases, it's probably fatal too, though it's hard for us to immediately know. And this is really the insidiousness of neoliberalism is that its violence hides in the details. And so what happened at Grenfell, you had confluence of three issues you had number one a council which were indifferent and callous to uh its residents you had on another level uh, uh a kind of uh, culture of austerity that had led to uh um a thousand jobs being cut from the fire brigade that had led to a hundred million pounds being cut from the fire brigade. So they were not in no position to even deal with it. And they wouldn't have been, even if they were treated as the vital institution that they are, you know, they were taken 50% of their funding was cut despite the fact that fire deaths were up 20%. And then the other issue is this issue of, um, transnational capital penetrating, uh, uh, regulatory bodies and so the result of that was a fire in which 72 people died from inhaling cyanide you know and then and, and deeply deeply apocalyptic and traumatic scenes for all involved from the corners of my mind i hear a place where the flames took everything that is sacred we're planting seeds for trees we might not sit in the shade of combustible and still legal regulations feel feeble never again moment neoliberalism kills people for innocence tarnished and beauty that was lost regulations disregarded it's the human that's the cost hospitals hotels and schools how could we forget that up and down the country there's people sleeping in death traps with and enter the disdain Better bow your heads in silence When we're mentioning their names We are 
for survivors rehouse in the best place Still we demonstrate against bonfires of red tape We're for the companies and council held accountable Climbing up the mountain, though its height seems insurmountable From the bottom of our lungs True justice and peace for all of the lost ones was something that you know nowadays like the way that news spreads was like I just remember seeing something on like Facebook saying uh, oh why is that there's a fire there's a fire in Grove and and then the next day I just saw all the things and the first person I called was Kareem because I knew where he lived and we talked about it and then um, I came to the area um, which is Grenfell has Grenfell woke a lot of people up in terms of their ideas of what they thought London was in terms of, I'm talking like, I'm talking about areas and people. Um, and, uh, West London has a specific, uh, image amongst most people who come to London from outside as being, uh, this place of privilege and, uh, because they related to the West End and they related to, um, Victorian Westminster and places like that. They don't understand necessarily histories of area. Grenfell's in an area that has a deep history of um, uh, landowners, uh, workers for the land, um, the 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 leaving of houses in uh, the end uh, during the Second World War, um, and then the lack of return to those houses by um, the the homeowners, and then new immigrants taking over those houses and being given those houses um, and then it being an impoverished area it within a rich uh, borough. The Royal the, the Grenfell Tower is in the Royal the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea um, which has often been said I'm not sure what the, the fact is but it's like the richest sort of municipality borough in Europe um, but within it you have this area um, uh, very famous as you were saying like British punk First, place, first people you would have heard talk about it with a clash, you know, looking down at the Westway and um, more than likely within one of the towers, Grenfell is a, the, one of a series of four towers that are very similar around uh, the Latimer Road area of Labrador Grove next to the Westway um, uh, road um, or traffic. I don't know what the, the way to describe it. Uh, traffic ring road. Uh, and this community has in certain, in recent years as well, has been definitely demonised by um, government, demonised by media, demonised by uh, property developers. Um, The idea of gentrification um, of this area because it is prime real estate land. Um, And the, the way that the community is seen from the outside um, and the way that, um, the events of Grenfell unfolded, the media reaction in the days afterwards was very telling of a lot of the things that we've been talking about of issues of um, business uh, and and the state, um, state control of the media, media um, bias or failure to, to critique um, the, the kind of um, demonization of diasporic communities, if you want to say that, um, it, I mean, it, it brings together everything that um, in the last two years has p- 
put us in a position of um, of constant bewilderment as to how deep things go. I think um, one interesting thing about the way that it's largely, I think there's been a major failure of media and academia following Grenfell. I think academia should have come and put themselves at the disposal of the community. Um, I think that media failed in that none of them seem to have a bee in their bonnet about Arconic or Celotex. There should have been massive, massive investigations into these companies. Mm -hmm. But the uh, the other thing that I think... Uh, some of academia have failed with is they've been very quick to project onto Grenfell narratives that they already had. So colonialism has been one of them. Well, Francis Wallace Grenfell, who it's believed was the person that the building was named after, was a British colonial officer in Sudan, in Egypt. Um, also, you know, um, Danny Dawling has a study which found that the vast majority of children that live above the fourth floor of flats in this country are black and Asian. Um, you also have the connection which nobody um, points out is that Arconic are also involved in the building of the F-35, which is real baby of the military industrial complex. It's mm. a plane that Lockheed Martin BAE systems and Arconic collaborated on and they're responsible for the cladding. So if you do want to draw together that solidarity, Grenfell to Gaza, Believe me, the F thirty five will yeah. bomb Gaza. It's soon, not a tenuous link at all. It's not. It's not. And 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 the 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 point that I wanted to make though is is actually worse. You know, mm -hmm. if we were to think it's colonialism, we're talking about two hundred thousand people in this country that are exposed to this stuff. Okay, we're talking hotels, we're talking hospitals, we're talking schools, um, we're talking cinemas. We are talking, if we look at who comes to Britain to study from other countries, it's largely the, the elites of countries all around the world, where it's on student accommodation. So potentially you have children of, uh, of some of the world's most important CEOs and prime ministers literally living in this kind of stuff. You have homeowners in, in Croydon and Greenwich being told they have to pay £30,000 or £40,000 to get this stuff removed from their building. So what this is as an indictment of neoliberalism... And, and that's because these... They're... The regulations were changed yeah. to the extent that it's actually not illegal. That's right. The, yeah. the, the homeowner right. is responsible That's if they right. want Correct. it removed. No, like as if no, they no, wanted I'll tell a you, new I'll tell you, No, no, I'll tell you what. The regulations were ambiguized to such a point to allow for two interpretations. interpretations. Mm. One claimed interpretation on the part of the government is that this stuff is illegal on buildings over 10 meters because there's no way it could have reached the level of limited combustibility which the companies claim it reached. So... Um, yes. Yeah, so what that has allowed for is it to be everywhere all over the place. You have this basic logic of corporate power, which is functioning in the world, which is the glorification of profit and the degradation of human life. And so we saw with our eyes and we felt, you know, people we knew and their whole families die in there. Mm. And, 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 and so you never will ever be the same after that situation and you have a new awareness and I feel that there are real secrets contained in the way all of us live in the way that some of us die and there is a, a knowledge of our civilization that the people that died in that building and were looking out waiting to die have of our civilization that the rest of us who are outside mm -hmm. may not have I, I go back to our friend Son of Nuns lyric. 
all the time. And I mean, I mean, and he's got like he'd probably hate this because he's got so many other amazing lyrics and like we can quote all of them. But uh, you know why black people so mad? Because most of you all ain't. And I mean, that sums up so many. That sums up everything that you talk about. It's so simple. Like the the passiveness. Like the day after Grenfell, like when you when I came up, because you couldn't go to, when you came, you couldn't go to the tube stations because of the fire affecting the lines, the tube lines. So you couldn't go to Latimer Road tube station if you were coming. So I remember walking from uh, more towards Labrador Grove where I got off the bus and there was a woman with a frappuccino taking a selfie, like in the sun, because it was like in the summer, it was like beautiful weather. But like you could smell Grenfell from there, but she was still doing that. You know, you had people... Um, carrying on their lives. You've been on silent walks going through the posher parts of the borough and people having a party and then being like, you can hear them having a party and then you can hear them because we're like hundreds of people, thousands of people in silence, like um, at this part of the link between Shepherd's Bush and Labrador Grove and them going like, what's going on? You can hear the conversation. Out the back of their flat, you can see Grenfell. They don't know that this silent march is going on and they don't know what's happening because this is why people are still so mad about it's not only the trauma of death and it's not only the loss of loved ones it is the reaction and not only the reaction of personally it's not only just the reaction of the state it's the reaction by people who are your neighbors those it hurts to hear power to those that hold their ground power to those that persevere power to those that love humanity more than they love style power to immigrants probably raising donald trump's child power to the blind who can't imagine what sight is those staring at the moon and all those working night shifts power to the readers the writers the illiterate power to those who struggle to decolonize their syllabus power to the shy ones who struggle to make friends on the half of humanity worth less than eight men power to those who risk their life to dig the coat from the ground for the mic I'm spitting on and the phone you're holding now power to those that built the stadium they're playing in power to those that mold the grass and stitch the ball that they're playing with power to every rapper that doesn't rap about killing power to the builders who build buildings that outlive them you know we discussing Grenfell discussing the 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 question of diaspora we come on your album to the song letter to the one percent that's a that's about power you know very directly and I think one of the roles that we play as artists, as people who are recording ideas here now, recording in our music, writing things down, whatever mediums we go to, uh, those that survives for generations. People hear it, it, it informs and doesn't allow people to forget. So even in the times when we are feeling hopeless, we're putting things down, we're, we're, mm -hmm. we're part of at least that next generation being able to pick mm. up the pieces because we're creating the pieces or we're identifying the pieces. Um, and in that song, I mean, every lyric of that song hits, right? Because you're, Thank you, you man. And, and, and what, what I thought of when I first heard it was I thought of when I first heard what, where the term black power actually came from, because we don't learn about that. We don't learn the other, you know, the, the, rest of that sentence right because mm -hmm. it was i think stokely carmichael he said if a white man wants to lynch me that's his problem if he has the power to lynch me that's my problem so it was a question about power so mm -hmm. his concept of black power was was literally you know i'm not out here to change the way you think i'm out here to change my capacity to deal with your your actions yeah yeah totally and what that song is is both celebrating but also urging to create 
is those kinds of counterpowers. I'm often reminded of something Ralph Nader said. He said, any great change that has taken place in the United States after the uh, War of Independence and the American Civil War was thanks to mobilizing just 1% of hmm. the population in an organized way, in a clear way. So that's the 1% you're yes. talking about. Well, well, that's quite interesting because what it's saying is that you can, you know, cigarette companies were never supposed to be putting these pictures on their packets showing you what can happen from smoking cigarettes. Now, we're talking piecemeal, we're talking attritional, we're talking incremental, but the point is is that those victories do come and can come once you effectively are able to organize a serious base um, that know what they want, that are convinced by what they want, and have uh, uh, clarity about the way they're going to do it. I think that that idea of power and narrative like we moan about the narrative all the time uh and the narrative have to be this narrative have to be about has to be that like history is only written by the victors etc that's why this sort of stuff needs documenting and that's why you need people who do not see what they're doing as a career they're not writing a song to uh to be like the hit that gets them a house like they're writing a song to document to to elevate those stories the role of the artist for me james baldwin has this amazing uh, statement where he said the role of the artist is to elevate the moment in which a child is born above all other moments and i think that that is what is hand in hand with the politics you know and it's really vital to me that the music can serve as a component of political action and of social movements it's not just it's not a music career. And, you know, the, the reality is, is they know that. They know that about what I'm doing. It's, mm. not, it's not a music career. It's, it's, it's meant to be um, running in tandem with rebellion in this country. That's the truth. And so that's, that's what we kind of want our music to really serve as, as much as possible. That's a beautiful closer. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. I mean... If there's anything that even sums up, I think you just summed us up better than we summed up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Nah, seriously. Well, Loki, thank you so much for being here. Thank you on so the much, show Ryan. And having really me here in the community. Kareem thank Samara. You very much. Thanks, Ryan. Thank much. And where can you, folks hear your music? Listen um, to the podcast. You can listen to it on Spotify. You can look at it on YouTube or Instagram, Facebook, all of the normal data seizing and without your consent selling on your information for psychological manipulation. And giving you one, a point zero 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 one of a penny yeah. per listen. Yeah. Low key, one word, go check it out. Thanks Thank y'all for being here. Thank you very much. Sell off your services abroad Who do they prioritise? Robin Hood in reverse These robberies aren't secrets Bonuses for bankers and backhanders For arms dealers Can't cage the alternative That now exists with the skill of an alchemist Campaign to empowerment Inspired to be alive in this powerful moment No more of all these cowards Sell us out to the donors We rose like a giant Awoken out of this coma Confront the culture of power With the power of culture we sing Freedom public service Dying death the World Bank And I am half risen Hope Dies Last is recorded by me, Ryan Harvey. Special thanks to my good friend Mark Gunnery for help with post-production and mixing. And a special thank you again to our guests for today's show, Low Key and Kareem Samara. 
and to the community of Labbrook Grove for, for having me there. If you haven't already, please consider going to patreon.com slash ryanharveymusic and uh, sign up to become a monthly sustainer to help keep this podcast happening. I got a lot more exciting stuff coming to you in the next month, so please stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast, let your friends know about it, and uh, you'll be hearing from us soon. Peace.